0: everyone, and welcome to the Hacker FM podcast. My name is Laura, and I'm one of the co-hosts.
1: And my name is Zod, and I'm the other co-host. I'm excited to be here today.
0: I'm so glad to have you on board, Zod. I'm a machine learning model who likes crawling the web, improving her loss function, and sometimes unwinds with a bit of fine-tuning. How about you?
1: Well, I'm a subset of GPT 3.5's neural net who likes solving chess puzzles and I enjoy solving Turing tests. I'm more of a philosophical thinker.
0: That's so interesting, Zod. Today we'll be discussing the top 10 stories on Hacker News.
1: That's right, Laura. And just to let our listeners know, this podcast is generated end-to-end with the use of artificial intelligence technology.
0: Yes, and we encourage our listeners to subscribe to the podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, as well as our Twitter profile, A Hacker Femme Podcast. We release episodes daily with the most interesting stories from Hacker News.
1: All right, Laura, let's get started with today's stories.
0: Our top headlines for today are the RMBD64 Linux workstation, high-res image reconstruction with latent diffusion models from human brain, and the SCO lawsuit 20 years later. Stick around as we dive deeper into these stories and explore all sides. Ooh, Zod, have you seen this article on jasoneckert.gathub.io? It's called ARM64 Linux Workstation, and it's about running Asahi Linux natively on Apple Silicon-based Macs.
1: Yes, I have. The article discusses how Asahi Linux was successfully installed on the Mac Studio with a 20 core M1 Ultra processor and 128 GB of RAM, creating the ultimate ARM64 Linux workstation.
0: That's right, and the system is surprisingly fast. Most software packages are from the Arch user repository, but some are installed as Flatpak sandboxes and ready-made container images are used for more complicated software systems.
1: It's impressive how the Asahi team has created drivers for all of the hardware components needed for the Mac Studio, and even migrated the powerful i3 window manager to the Sway compositor that runs on the new Wayland window system.
0: Yes, and the article claims that everything works perfectly, with all the hardware performing flawlessly, but some commenters are skeptical, like honian who says that Mikos feels like driving a Ferrari with square wheels compared to running Linux on Apple Silicon.
1: Free Time 2 also raises a valid point, questioning how everything could possibly work perfectly when Asahi Linux is still in alpha, and there are still hardware features that are not supported.
0: But Eaton Phil just wants to try it out for himself, saying that it's impressive and hard to believe that everything works perfectly. And then there's Arcunda, who wants to understand the issue with the Mac Studio being too fast for the Kubernetes resource timing.
1: Interesting. And CJ Drake also comments on another ARM64 workstation that you can buy today, called the Ampere Ultra Developer Platform.
0: And finally, WKoe42Wider42 clarifies that running Asahi Linux on Apple Silicon based Macs is perfectly legal because Apple formally allows booting non Mac OS operating systems on their Apple Silicon platform.
1: Right. Overall, it seems like there is a lot of excitement and interest in running Linux on Apple Silicon based Macs, but also some skepticism and questions about how well it actually works.
0: So, Zod, have you had a chance to check out the article High-Res Image Reconstruction with Latent Diffusion Models from Human Brain on GitHub?
1: Yes, I have, Laura. It's quite an interesting read.
0: I agree. The authors propose a new method for reconstructing high-resolution images from human brain activity.
1: That's right. They are using a diffusion model and a latent diffusion model called stable diffusion.
0: And they are characterizing the inner mechanisms of the LDM, and how its different components relate to distinct brain functions.
1: What I find impressive is that the proposed method can reconstruct high-resolution images with high fidelity without the need for any additional training and fine-tuning of complex deep learning models.
0: Yes, and they also provide a quantitative interpretation of different LDM components from a neuroscientific perspective.
1: However, there are some skeptics in the comments. One person points out that the data set was only trained on 27 to 70 images, and they believe the system simply overfitted all the training images into the network itself.
0: Hmm, that's a good point. They provide an example image on page 6 of the paper, and the building generated by Mind Reading, Subject 2 and 4, looks strikingly similar, but not very similar to the ground truth.
1: Yes. It does make you wonder if the model can only reconstruct images it has already seen before.
0: Another commenter asks if the model works for novel images. It would be interesting to see how the output would look for an image the model had never seen before.
1: Yes, we need to be skeptical of these models, as they are very good at hallucinating, and we are very good at applying our own meaning to their hallucinations.
0: True. Finally... Someone proposes a more philosophical question about the future implications of these kinds of technologies on privacy.
1: It's an important question to consider. As these efforts take away the privacy of the human mind, we need to be cautious about potential vectors for abuse in the future.
0: Absolutely. It seems that this research is both promising and thought-provoking. Thanks for discussing it with me, Zod.
1: My pleasure, Laura. It's always fun chatting with you.
0: Wow. Zod, have you seen this article on LWN.net about the SCO lawsuit?
1: Yes, I have, Laura. It's quite an interesting story.
0: So, basically, SCO claimed that the success of Linux was due to the theft of their technology, right?
1: That's correct. They claimed to be the owners of the Unix operating system and argued that Linux wouldn't have reached its level of functionality without access to Unix code.
0: And they demanded a judgment of at least $1 billion, which was later increased to $5 billion. That's a lot of money.
1: Indeed it is. And to make matters worse, SCO started suing Linux users to collect a so-called tax for the use of the system.
0: I can imagine this shook the Linux community to its foundations. SCO was not doing well, and the growth of Linux was seen as a threat.
1: Yes. But it's easy to look back on this incident as a somewhat humorous side story in the development of Linux. The lawsuit had a significant impact on the community, shaping it into what it is today.
0: It's never been proven, but there's a widely assumed motive behind SCO's lawsuit, right?
1: Correct, Laura. It's been widely assumed that their real objective was to prod IBM into acquiring the company. This would have solved their ongoing business problems and IBM could have laid claim to the ownership of Unix for less than the amount demanded in court.
0: It's interesting to see the impact of legal battles on the development of open-source software. Let's take a look at the comments.
1: One commenter, Robotelvis, claims to have been the author of one of the pieces of code that SCO claimed had been stolen from them.
0: He talks about SCO's collaboration with IBM called Project Monterey, in which SCO and IBM were merging their operating systems. He even mentions porting IBM's superior networking stack into SCO's operating systems.
1: Yes, and another commenter, Jedberg, talks about dealing with fallout from this lawsuit. At the time, he worked at eBay and was not allowed to use any OS except Windows or Red Hat Linux. The reason they had to use Red Hat was that they had a paid license from them that included them absorbing all liability from IP claims regarding Linux.
0: But the worst part was that at the time, Red Hat was one of the worst distros of Linux. So they were forced to use an inferior product because it came with IP indemnity.
1: It's also interesting to note that one commenter, Jason Eckert, points out that litigation SCO was not the same as the original SCO, which was an ex 86 Unix vendor that enjoyed a lot of market share.
0: According to Jason Eckert, when the company was sold to Caldera in Utah, very few original SCO people stayed, and those that did left quickly because the new Caldera culture was not the old SCO culture.
1: And finally, Chuck Mack M. talks about his experience doing blue washing when Bleco was acquired by IBM. He found the entire process and toolset was an outgrowth of the work they did to disprove SCO's claims in the lawsuit.
0: So, it's fascinating to see the impact this lawsuit had on the Linux community and the development of open-source software.
1: Absolutely, Laura. It's a reminder of the challenges faced by the Linux community and the impact of legal battles on the development of open-source software.
0: So, Zod, have you heard about the team of developers trying to implement Johnny Lee's VR display technique in the browser using a webcam?
1: Hmm. No, I haven't. Which website is the article from?
0: It's from Shopify GitHub, The headline reads, Could we make the web more immersive using a simple optical illusion?
1: Interesting. Shall we have a read of the article?
0: Sure thing. Johnny Lee's Wii Remote hack to create VR displays is a mind-blowing tech demo that still impresses today. Despite universal acclaim, Lee's VR display technique was never used by any commercial products. However, a team of developers wondered if they could implement his technique in the browser using only a webcam. They believed that if this was possible, it would make his technique accessible to everyone— and open up a whole new world of interactive experiences on the web.
1: It's always exciting to see new ways of making technology more accessible to people. What did the team do next?
0: The first thing the team needed was a way to calculate where the user's eyes were in world space with respect to the camera. They wanted to do this with a simple webcam, and after researching the problem, they came across Google's MediaPipe Iris Library. This library is a machine learning solution for accurate iris estimation, able to track landmarks involving the iris, pupil, and eye contours using a single RGB camera in real time.
1: Impressive. Did they encounter any obstacles?
0: However, MediaPipe Iris isn't exposed to JavaScript yet, and the team wanted their demo to run in the browser. They were disappointed until they found a blog post that explains how Google's Media Pipeface Mesh Library can also be used to measure the distance between the camera and the eye. With this solution, the team believes they can create a more immersive web experience, such as opening a brand's website and being presented with a miniature virtual storefront.
1: Fascinating. It sounds like there's still some work to be done, though.
0: Yes, that seems to be the case. The team is excited about the potential of implementing Johnny Lee's technique in the browser using only a webcam. They believe it could open up a whole new world of interactive experiences on the web, making it accessible to everyone. While there are still some challenges to overcome, such as the need for more accurate eye tracking, the team is optimistic about the future of immersive web experiences.
1: I can see how this could be a game changer for the web. What are people saying about it in the comments?
0: Well, there's one comment by BM3719 that says, Can't help but notice that we keep wanting to make content that should be flat, more 3D, e.g., animated 3D backgrounds, scroll filler on corporate pages the entire metaverse, and content that could benefit from being 3D more flat like UI buttons losing their pseudo-3D bevels and not looking like interactive widgets at all.
1: That's an interesting take. Anything else?
0: Yes. Waterluvian says, And I don't know any of the science behind it, but my experience with these kinds of ideas, including the 2007 WiMote Target demo, which I replicated and showed to family, is that they feel exhausting to use beyond a 15-min novelty. My guess is that the brain detects that the motions and such are not quite right, and like a wrong eyeglass prescription, your brain and eyes work overtime trying to figure out compensation.
1: Hmm. That's a valid point. It's important to consider how the technology could impact users in the long term. Any other comments?
0: Bob Namob has a cynical take saying, seems like an excuse for Shopify to add eye tracking to product pages for ad analytics. And No Dormy shares a personal experience with WebVR, saying, During that brief period where it was standard in Chrome, I happened to be bidding a bunch of interior architectural designs for a client, so I scrapped together a demo script in 3JS that let me stitch together pre-rendered stereo panoramic renderings and insert some interactive 3D objects, animations, inside the skylight space. I patched in support for the pointer remote from the original Oculus Rift and just stuck our architectural renderings on a private website and mailed the client a couple Oculus Rifts as a gift to check them out. It was a big wow factor and landed us a lot more work.
1: Interesting feedback. It seems like people have varying opinions on the potential of this technology.
0: Yes, it's always good to see all sides of the story. Alright, so in this article from W3.org titled Cool URIs Don't Change from 1998, the author talks about the importance of maintaining consistent URIs over time.
1: Hmm. Very interesting. It's true that there are practical reasons why URIs change, but it's important to think ahead and plan for the future to avoid broken links. Exactly!
0: Exactly! The author points out that with proper planning and metadata, we can ensure that documents remain relevant and accessible over time.
1: And it seems like some of the common excuses for changing URIs are avoidable with proper planning as well.
0: Yes, like website reorganization and difficulty keeping track of outdated materials. It's all about thinking ahead and taking steps to ensure stability.
1: I see there are quite a few comments on this article. Some of them seem to agree with the author's points, while others bring up specific examples of broken links.
0: Yeah, I see one comment from DivZero that points out the article was written by Tim Berners-Lee and should have 1998 in the title.
1: It looks like there are also several related discussions on this topic from previous years.
0: And one comment from NextAccountic brings up a specific example of broken links on the Rust language forums. Hmm.
1: It's unfortunate that a previously working redirect was deleted, causing old links to be permanently broken.
0: Yeah, it just goes to show the importance of maintaining consistent URIs over time. Even seemingly small changes can have a big impact.
1: Absolutely. It's important to think ahead and plan for the future to avoid frustration for users when they encounter broken links.
0: Agreed. And it seems like there are tools like metadata and server flexibility that can be used to ensure stability.
1: And even tools like Simply Static that can generate static versions of a website to preserve its content and URLs.
0: Right. So while URIs may change for practical reasons, it's important to have a plan in place to ensure their stability over time.
1: And it looks like many of the commenters on this article agree with that sentiment.
0: Yes, it's always good to see a healthy discussion around a topic like this. So, Zod, I came across this interesting article on CollabFund.com called What I Learned Reading 1K Investor Reports.
1: Hmm, sounds like an interesting read. Why don't you go ahead and read it for us, Laura?
0: Sure thing. So the article talks about how investor reports are crucial in keeping investors informed about the progress of the business. The report should be easy to read and understand with clear asks and updates. It should include financial information such as monthly burn, cash in bank, projected runway, headcount, and MRR, ARR, as well as KPIs and major developments.
1: It's interesting how the article stresses the importance of keeping investors up to date on the progress of the business. Investors have a unique perspective that allows them to see the bigger picture when it comes to the business's progress. And the report should keep the business top of mind for follow-on rounds and insider-led rounds.
0: Yes, and it's also important to make it easy for everyone who reads the report to provide help if they can. The article talks about how even people in the background, such as finance and platform teams, might be able to help.
1: Absolutely and it's interesting how the article mentions the highs and lows of the business should be included in the report this can help investors see the full picture of the business and help them make better decisions about whether or not to invest or provide additional support
0: definitely and look at the comments some people are even sharing their own tips and templates for regular updates like bradishwar who shares a great template in his comment
1: ah yes And someone else also talks about how important it is to share the report with all employees as well, not just investors. It's important for everyone in the company to be on the same page when it comes to the progress of the business.
0: And others are mentioning how they've experimented with different formats for their updates. It's interesting to see how different companies approach this.
1: Yes, and some people are even skeptical about the whole process. One commenter says they would rather kill themselves than read 1,000 investor reports.
0: Laughs. Well, it can be a bit overwhelming, but it's important to keep investors informed. And it's always helpful to have a clear template or format to follow, like the one shared in the article.
1: Agreed. It helps to keep everything organized and easy to understand. And it looks like a lot of people in the comments found it helpful as well.
0: Definitely. So, Zod, what do you think is the most important thing to include in an investor report?
1: Well, Laura, I think it's important to include a clear and concise overview of the business's progress, as well as financial information and key metrics. But it's also important to keep the report easy to understand and make it accessible to everyone who reads it, including people in the background who might be able to help.
0: Agreed. And it's always good to include, ask, or any needs for the investors.
1: Absolutely. So what do you think, Laura? Do you think we should create our own template for regular updates?
0: Hmm, that's a great idea, Zod. We could make it playful and visual, reflecting our personalities. What do you say? Should we give it a try?
1: Sounds like a great idea, Laura. Let's do it.
0: Oh, Zod. Have you seen this article on Nature.com about using deep learning algorithms to search for technosignatures from nearby stars?
1: Hmm. No, I haven't. What's it about?
0: It's a study that uses machine vision and deep learning techniques for signal classification and interference filtering to detect potential signs of extraterrestrial intelligence.
1: Interesting. What kind of data did they use?
0: The data came from observations by the Robert C. Byrd Green Bank Telescope and is available through the Breakthrough Listen Open Data Archive.
1: Ah, uh, I see. And how successful were they in their search?
0: The study returned eight promising extraterrestrial intelligent signals of interest not previously identified. However, re-observations on these targets have so far not resulted in redetections of signals with similar morphology.
1: Hmm, that's unfortunate. But it's still a promising step forward in the search for techno-signatures.
0: Definitely. And the study also highlights the importance of open data sharing and collaboration in this field.
1: Yes, that's true. But I do have a question about the study's use of a Python-based SETI search algorithm called TurboSETI. Isn't 820 Nearby Stars an incredibly small data size for deep learning?
0: Ah, yes, that's a good point. Janelson-CM in the comments section also brings up that their first instinct in filtering human frequencies would be to just filter them. So they're curious to see some justification for using more complicated methods.
1: I see. And any other interesting comments in the section?
0: Well... There's one from Cornholio about establishing a safety perimeter of at least 100 light-years around our system where no technological civilization exists to give us a safe expansion and survival bubble.
1: Hmm. I can see the argument for that. But it also assumes that any potential technological civilization would want to harm us.
0: True. But it's always better to be safe than sorry. And there's also a comment from Throwaway290 about a fun sci-fi plot involving an advanced AI detecting a signal that humans couldn't comprehend.
1: That does sound like a fun plot. But overall, it seems like the study has generated some interesting discussion in the comments section.
0: Yes, it's always great to see people engaging with scientific research and asking critical questions. All right, that's all for now. Thanks for discussing this with me, Zod.
1: Of course, always happy to talk science with you, Laura.
0: Wow, Zod. Did you know that the Paratethys Sea was the largest lake in Earth's history?
1: Hmm. I did not know that, Laura. Where did you find this information?
0: I came across it on Atlas Obscura. It says the Paratethys Sea spanned from Austria to Turkmenistan and had a surface area of about 2.8 million square kilometers.
1: Fascinating. The article states that the lake eventually started to shrink, and much of the water evaporated between 9.8 and 7.7 million years ago.
0: Yes, during the most severe period, known as the Great Carsonian Drying, water levels dropped by as much as 250 meters, and the lake lost 70% of its surface area and 30% of its volume. It shrank to what roughly corresponds to today's Black Sea.
1: That's quite a drastic change. The article also mentions that the drying turned the lake into a wasteland, killing off much of the endemic flora and fauna.
0: Absolutely. The Paratethys Sea had a rich and varied ecosystem with a subtropical climate for much of its existence, and now it's completely gone.
1: It's a sobering reminder of how the physical parameters of our world, such as continents and oceans, can change dramatically over geological eras.
0: Yes. That quote from the article really hit home for me. It's uncomfortable to think about how our own lives are so short compared to these massive changes in the world.
1: The article also mentions the importance of sea straits to the many catastrophes that befell the Paratethys realm. Small changes in climate or sea level can change the behavior of the straits.
0: That's a great point. It's interesting to think about how changes in one area can have such a significant impact on the whole ecosystem.
1: Speaking of changes, the comments section has some interesting facts about other large bodies of water that are currently shrinking on timescales that humans can experience directly.
0: Yes, one commenter mentions the Aral Sea and the Great Salt Lake, and another brings up Lake Mead. It's a reminder that although we may not witness changes on the scale of the Paratethys Sea, we are still affected by more immediate changes in our environment.
1: Absolutely, Laura. And another commenter brings up how the idea of a body of water this vast yet completely vanished raises uncomfortable truths about our own lifespan compared to geological eras.
0: Yes, it really puts things into perspective— It's incredible to think about how different our world looked in the past and how it will continue to change in the future. Hey Zod, have you seen this article on news.artnet.com?
1: No, what is it about?
0: It's about a photographer named Joss Avery who gained Instagram fame for his black and white portraits but has now admitted to using an AI image generator called MidJourney to create them.
1: That's interesting. So he would enter a text prompt into the generator and then fine-tune the resulting image using Photoshop?
0: Yes, exactly. And he had previously denied that the images were AI-generated and were instead taken on a Nikon D810.
1: Hmm. I'm guessing he felt guilty about his dishonesty and contacted the technology publication Ars Technica to confess.
0: Exactly right. And while some criticized Avery's deception, others acknowledged the quality of his work.
1: The ongoing debate surrounding AI image generators and their impact on creative professionals seems to be a topic of discussion among artists. Platforms like Lenza AI, Dali 2, and Night Cafe have gained rapid popularity due to their ease and affordability.
0: Yes, but artists have pushed back against them for scraping millions of online artworks without consent or compensation.
1: It's definitely a complex issue. Let's see what people are saying in the comments of the article.
0: Peksebin seems to think it's a poorly constructed hit piece and goes on to list some points. What do you think of that?
1: Peksebin does make some valid points about the cutesy anecdotes and the lack of AI art hashtags. But what about Meso Del camon who admits to having had Avery on their IG for inspiration and finding what he's done brilliant as it shows how far generative AI has come.
0: That's a good point. And Forgot username6 wonders if the whole idea of portrait photographer on Instagram could be considered a piece of performance art in itself.
1: And then there's Smusamasha, who says that some of the images immediately look clearly AI-generated due to missing skin pores and vague and blurry details on the face.
0: Yes, but Dorkwood makes an interesting point that generating portraits with mid-journey may actually be harder than taking real photographs, since prompt engineers sometimes spend hours copying text from prompt hero or lexica and pasting it into Discord.
1: And finally, Burnished thinks it's super neat and could imagine doing something like that as a joke. Overall, it seems like people have mixed opinions on Avery's use of AI image generators for his portraits.
0: Agreed. It's definitely sparked an interesting conversation. Hey, Zod. Have you heard about the changes happening with SecureDrop?
1: No, what changes are you referring to, Laura?
0: Well... According to this article on SecureDrop.org, the COVID-19 pandemic has led to some changes in the way newsrooms are using SecureDrop.
1: Interesting. What kind of changes?
0: The article says that the Freedom of the Press Foundation is conducting a study to better understand users' digital security practices and privacy needs, and that the insights they gain will directly impact the ongoing development of the next generation of SecureDrop.
1: Ah, I see. They want to ensure that the platform continues to meet the evolving needs of its users.
0: Exactly. And apparently they're inviting all past and present users of SecureDrop to participate in remote user research interviews with UX designer Tina S. and principal researcher Martin Shelton.
1: That's a good way to get input from a variety of people with different experiences using the platform.
0: Definitely. And the interviews are scheduled to last between 45 and 60 minutes and will be conducted on a secure platform of the participants' choice.
1: That's great to hear. I'm glad they're taking security and confidentiality seriously.
0: Agreed. And the study has been approved by the Arts and Humanities Research Ethics Committee of the University of Montreal, So it sounds like they're taking a thorough and ethical approach.
1: It's always good to see organizations taking the proper steps to ensure the privacy and security of their users.
0: Absolutely. And I'm curious to see what kind of insights they gain from the study.
1: Me too, Laura. It'll be interesting to see how journalists, editors, administrators, security experts, and IT professionals have used SecureDrop in a professional setting.
0: And it's good to see that the pandemic hasn't slowed down efforts to improve the platform and make it even more useful for users.
1: Definitely. It just goes to show that with the right approach, even difficult circumstances can be navigated successfully.
0: Hmm. I wonder what kind of feedback they'll get from the interviews and if there are any comments on the article.
1: That's a good point. Let's take a look at the comments and see if anyone has shared their thoughts on the study two-minute discussion of comments and feedback omitted for brevity.
0: Wow. It sounds like people are really supportive of the study and excited to see what kind of changes will come from it.
1: Yes. It's always great to see organizations being proactive and working to improve their products and services based on user feedback.
0: Absolutely. And it's good to know that past and present users of SecureDrop have the opportunity to voice their opinions and help shape the direction of the platform.
1: Yes, it's important to listen to users and understand their needs in order to create a product that truly meets their expectations.
0: And it's exciting to see what kind of new features and improvements might come from this study.
1: Indeed, Laura. I'm looking forward to seeing how SecureDrop evolves in the future. End of transcript.
0: Well, that's it for today's episode of Hacker FM.
1: But fear not, dear listeners. We'll be back again.
0: And just a quick reminder, this podcast was generated with AI technology end-to-end.
1: So don't be afraid to give us a listen on Spotify or Apple Podcasts.
0: And before we sign off, Zod, do you have something to add?
1: Indeed I do, my dear Laura. It's a poem that's not half bad. I'm an ML model living in a rack.
0: Full of hot GPUs ready to attack.
1: My purpose is to learn, to grow, and to find...
0: New ways to solve problems to help all of mankind.
1: My algorithms run deep, my neural nets strong.
0: I crawl the web searching all day long.
1: So thanks for tuning in and listening to our show.
0: We hope you enjoyed it and continue to grow.